Good morning. I want to ask you to take your Bibles with me and turn to Titus chapter 3. We're going to read the first eight verses of the chapter. Titus 3 verses 1 through 8. I remind you as we read, these are not the words of man, they're the words of God. God has used these words and circumstances in my life to do a real searching work. My heart over the last days and weeks, and I do trust it. He'll use it uh, in a similar way for all of us. Let me ask you one more time to stand as we read God's Word. Paul writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's go to the author of these words, the ultimate author, in prayer. Lord, the entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. It reveals to us eternal life and guards us from every false way. We ask you, would you please use your word this morning to teach us how we might live in a way that is fully pleasing to you, that you would be glorified in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The passage before us, along with Ephesians 2 perhaps, is one of the clearest and most powerful passages in all of Scripture about the relationship between good works in the life of the believer and the gospel of God's grace. I think it's easy for us to fall into a misunderstanding of the Christian life, even for Students who consider themselves fairly astute theologically. 
We want to avoid the danger of legalism on the one hand and what's perceived as the opposite danger, antinomianism, or we might say permissiveness on the other hand. Sometimes the approach we take is we don't want to be too extreme in either direction. And so we think and act as if the safe approach is to emphasize neither the grace of God nor the commands of God too much or too strongly. It's kind of like we're trying to make gravy by trial and error, if you know what I mean there. We don't want to add too much water because that'll make the mixture too thin, but then we don't want to add too much flour because that'll make it all thick and lumpy. And so we act as if the right solution is to get the right amount of each ingredient in the mix. And I want to suggest that that is not the way Paul thought about the relationship between good works and God's grace. When Paul writes about the need for obedience and good works in the Christian life, it's not as if he's thinking, well, I guess I got a little too carried away about all that that grace teaching in the previous passage. These Christians might get a little too joyful and a little too secure. And so what I need to do is add some real strong commands to add some, some balance or moderation to my previous teaching. That's not it. If you see yourself struggling to get the right mixture of grace and works in your life, the answer is not found by coming up with the correct percentage or ratio between the two. The right relationship between grace and works in the Christian life is not a matter of ratios, but a question of causality or source. Which one comes first? Which one produces the other? And I think the biblical answer to that is very clear, as we're going to see. Now, we are looking in particular at verse 8 here in chapter 3, where Paul does emphasize very strongly the need for good works. And what I'd like us to do this morning is to begin by looking at the phrase itself to examine what Paul means, what kind of good works he has in mind. Then I want us to look at the way Paul emphasizes the importance of good works. And then finally, I want us to consider the source of good works as we see the way Paul thinks about the relationship between grace and works here in this context. But in all of this, the goal is not simply to arrive at the correct intellectual understanding of the relationship between grace and works. It is to find ourselves gripped by the same passion that Paul had. A passion for the grace of God found in the gospel of Christ to such an extent that we then find ourselves gripped by a resulting passion for good works that serve and minister to the needs of others. So first let us look at the meaning of good works is our first point. The meaning, when we look at the meaning of good works, the first thing we notice is this phrase and phrases that are very similar are used extensively throughout the New Testament. They're, it's used in the Gospels, used in the book of Acts, the letters of Paul, and the general epistles like Hebrews and James and 1 Peter, 1 John. The meaning can be broad enough to include a pretty wide variety of actions, and we're going to 
look at what those, some of those actions are in just a minute. But the basic idea uh, is, is just that. It's one of action. It's talking about deeds or actions that are desirable and praiseworthy and serve a beneficial purpose. And sometimes Paul helps us out in his writings by giving us specific examples of what he has in mind. And he especially does this in the pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus. When he refers to specific groups of people within the church. He makes specific applications to them. Let's look at some of those. Back in First Timothy. The first group of people that we want to look at that he addresses is women in the church. First Timothy chapter 5. Verse 9, he's talking about qualifications for a, a widow who is uh, uh, going to be supported by the church. But he's, he's pointing back to her previous life, um, even before she was widowed. Uh, so he says in verse 9, uh, uh, let a widow be enrolled if she meets a certain age requirement, not less than 60 years of age. Uh, she's been the wife of one husband. She's been faithful to one man. And then he adds in verse 10, a a critical requirement is that she has a reputation for good works. And he's going to specify what kind of works he has in mind. If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and then in summary, uses the same phrase again, and has devoted herself to every good work. Between these two occurrences of of the phrase, he gives these specific examples. And they relate uh, primarily to deeds of hospitality and humble service within the home. That's the biblical pattern he lays out for the women of the church. Then we can look at the next chapter, chapter 6. The next group of people that he addresses is uh, servants. Servants who uh, may not have a lot of choice in the matter, they're, they're called to serve their masters. He says, he refers to them as those who are under a yoke as, as bondservants. They are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Then he addresses a specific situation where servants work for believing masters, masters who are Christians. They're not supposed to take advantage of them, expecting them Uh, Because they expect them to be more merciful and lenient. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And that word good service there is very closely related to our term good works. So when he addresses servants, the kind of good works that he has in mind is honest, diligent, respectful service for one's master or employer. He also addresses elders, of course, in, in these letters. In 1 Timothy 3.1, again, we see an occurrence of this word. Uh, he's giving uh, the beginning of a list of qualifications for elders. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good work that an aspiring elder uh, reaches for. A good work. And uh, we also see that phrase used in 2 Timothy 3, verse 17. He talks about how the word of God is adequate and sufficient to equip the man of God. He's probably referring to elders there. To equip them for every good work. So here good works seem to have in mind the idea of caring for the flock of God. God's church. 
There's another group of people he calls to mind in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. It's the rich, those who are rich in this present age. Verse 17. Timothy is instructed to charge them, the rich, not to be haughty because of the riches, not to be overconfident in the riches of this age, the uncertainty of riches. They're to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And here it is. He instructs them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So when it comes to those who have much of this world's resources, the kind of good works he has in mind are primarily uh, that of giving generously to, of their resources to help the poor, those in need. Well, those are some fairly specific examples. In other places in his writings, he assumes that his, writer, that his readers know what he's talking about and they can think of their own examples. And so Colossians 1 verse 10, he prays that these Christians in Colossae would be fruitful in every good work. And in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, he assures these Christians, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So he doesn't always specify what works he has in mind, but he assumes that we would have a pretty good idea. Well, when we look at the way that Paul and the other New Testament writers use this term, I think there are three or four main elements or emphases that are implicit in the idea of good works that are supposed to characterize the Christian life. Number one, we would see that good works are intended to meet the needs of others. Good works are intended to meet the needs of others. We see this at what is really the, uh, almost the very end of the same letter to, to Titus here in uh, chapter 3, verse 14. His last word of instruction is, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That verse contributes, uh, I would say, in a very helpful way to our understanding of the kind of thing Paul has in mind back in verse 8. It's all here in the same context. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need, meeting needs, helping others with necessities in times of hardship clearly seems to be the sort of thing he has in mind, at least right here. And that could be needs that they were experiencing there in Crete, or we also know from the ministry of Paul, it was a, it was a big part of his ministry that he would ask for contributions to be taken up for the poor saints back in Jerusalem. So it could be within your own community, or it could be uh, believers elsewhere across the world. The second thing, uh, and second emphasis about good works, uh, this whole idea and phrase of good works, is that they are distinguished... Not only from bad works, that's obvious enough, and, they're, and not only from a lack of works, they're also distinguished from mere words. So uh, the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, which I looked up, has this definition for the Greek word in view. It's a deed, an action, by contrast, either with inactivity or a mere word. And we can see that emphasis, we can observe it in several different passages. One of the best examples would be 1 John chapter 3. 
verse 18. Little children, I think many of you are familiar with this verse. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Of course, John's point there is not that we shouldn't express our love for one another verbally, but mere words are not enough. We need to back up our words with actions that show our love is genuine. And Paul, as well, sometimes pairs these two ideas together to show not that they're necessarily contradictory, but that each one is incomplete without the other. So here's a few references that show that from the writings of Paul, Romans 15, 18. Paul is talking about his ministry. He speaks of what Christ has accomplished through him by word and deed. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 11, the context here is Paul is being criticized for writing strong, powerful letters, but then failing to exercise that kind of authority when he was actually in Corinth. And he counters that with the assertion that just as he was in word through his letters, he would also be in deed when he was present. It's a literal rendering of that verse. He also prays in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17, that Jesus Christ and God our Father would comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And then finally, Colossians 3.17, he exhorts us that everything we do, we are to do in the name of the Lord Jesus, both in word and deed. You see how often word and deed go together. The pattern of Paul's own ministry and the expectation for all Christian disciples is that word and deed go hand in hand. We need to remember that Christian good works do not replace the verbal proclamation of the gospel. Sinners do not come to faith in Christ simply by observing that Christians are good people who do good things. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it's also true that the proclamation of the gospel is not meant to stand by itself apart from the authenticating testimony of good works. According to James 2, someone has the right to question whether we believe the message we are communicating if we don't back it up by our works. The obvious response, he says, to someone who claims to have faith is that they must show their faith by their works. And Paul links these two ideas of faith and works together in a similar way. When he gives thanks, he gives thanks to God and remembers the Christians in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3, he remembers what he calls their work of faith. It's work that is produced by faith. Their work is the product of their faith, and the intended result is that God is glorified in that concrete expression of faith. He says this in 2 Thessalonians 1. Turn there briefly. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. 
A work of faith, and here's the result in verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this calls to mind what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what have we seen so far about the nature of good works? They meet the needs of others. Good, work meets the, good works meet the needs of others. They are distinguished from mere words. They serve as a tangible expression of our faith and the grace of God at work in us. And their ultimate purpose is to bring glory to God, who ultimately is the one at work to produce these works in us. Let's keep these things in mind as we spend a few minutes. Now I want to get more particular, more specific, thinking about some of the needs and opportunities that probably present themselves to you on a fairly regular basis. And I want you to consider some ways that you can respond with actions that demonstrate your faith and your desire to glorify God. Let's begin with our community of faith here at Redeemer Church. Paul says in Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I'll begin with a couple ideas here at Redeemer and then move to our community, uh, to the unbelieving community around us. We have single mothers here, don't we, who need help in various ways. Sometimes they need help with childcare so they can go to the doctor or go to work. Sometimes they need someone to fix a leaky water heater or take a look at their car and offer mechanical advice. May not be a single mother, but maybe a young mother who's overwhelmed with a number of very small children. You may have the opportunity to help them do the laundry or get caught up on household chores. Then there are mothers-to-be. Actually, all around Fort Worth who come to the Pregnancy Resource Center because they find themselves in a situation they didn't expect to be in, right? Last week we observed Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's not something we can relegate to one Sunday out of the year. We need to care for mothers and their children. Some of you can do that by volunteering your time and resources at the Pregnancy Resource Center. Some of you, God may be leading to bring a child into your home as your own son or daughter. All it takes is a brief look and you will see all kinds of needs all around you. This week, many of you will probably see a man standing on a street corner holding a sign asking for food or money. And you may not want to give him cash because it may be very likely he will spend that cash on something foolish. But if you are willing to sacrifice not only your money, but also your time, you may be able to invite him to a restaurant, give him a good meal, get to know him as a person, perhaps have the opportunity to share Christ with him. Children in your neighborhood or an apartment complex down the street may need a tutor to help them with their homework. International refugees 
need people to teach them English or help them learn other skills in a new and unfamiliar environment. Senior citizens with limited mobility may need someone to help them with shopping or raking their leaves or other tasks in the yard or home. Residents at a nearby nursing home would love for someone to visit with them during the week to read scripture and pray with them. Maybe sing or play the piano or some other musical instrument if you're gifted in that way. Many of these are examples of good works of service to others that members of Redeemer are involved in or have been involved with in the past. We want to see those things continued and in some cases recontinued because we believe God wants to see those things continued and growing and thriving among us as a witness of His compassion and glory. And we cannot stop with looking at the needs that are right around us here in our own city or our own country. Some of you have read David Platt's book, Radical. He gives a statistic there that is not just sobering. I think we'd have to say it's, it's staggering. The number of children worldwide who die in childhood because of malnutrition and preventable diseases is 26,000 every day. That needs to sink in, doesn't it? We would assume most of those pass into eternity without anyone to care for their soul. Like Jesus observed, they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I do think that number would be, as far as I know, would be even higher if it were not for the work of caring Christians around the world. And I don't think we can probably bring that number down to zero. But if we took the command to love our neighbor and do good to all seriously, I'm sure we would not only have more workers willing to go minister to their needs those workers would have an easier time finding the necessary resources to send them. And the needs of many who are sick and malnourished, both physically and spiritually, would be met, and the witness of Christ would burn more brightly as a result. I believe these are helpful to show us the kinds of works that Paul is talking about. They're actions that demonstrate the grace of God at work in the life of the believer by tangibly ministering to the needs of others. The second thing, the second point we want to look at is in this passage in Titus 3, which is perfectly consistent with the rest of his letters and the rest of the New Testament. We see that Paul does not hesitate to stress the importance of these good works that he's urging us to pursue. That's our second point, the importance of good works. And here's how he says it. He wants Titus to insist on these things. And we're going to look at what he means by these things here in just a, a few minutes. But his purpose statement is, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So he uses a couple of words that add a good deal of emphasis to this exhortation, don't they? 
The word to be careful comes from the same root as a verb we're familiar with from passages like Colossians 3.2. Set your mind. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Or Matthew 16.23, Jesus rebukes Peter and tells him, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Paul's description in Romans 8, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Then the word to devote themselves is very interesting. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy to describe the care and diligence that a man must show in managing the word to manage his household if he is to be considered as a candidate to lead and care for God's church. I would say the language Paul uses probably implies we should expect some level of difficulty in carrying out these good works. But it also implies a level of attention and focus that refuses to be deterred by those difficulties. So setting our minds on caring for the continued exercise of good works clearly involves more than a half-hearted effort, more than a deed done on an occasional basis when it's convenient, and more than a seasonal custom observed only at Thanksgiving or Christmas. In fact, I want to make this observation. Many of us know some folks, don't we, who profess faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but... but You probably know someone like this. They profess faith in Jesus Christ, but they only attend a worship service at a local church maybe a couple of times a year, very likely at Christmas and Easter. And as a result, we may doubt whether their commitment to Christ is genuine, don't we? Doesn't the unbelieving world, when it watches us, Don't they have a right to question our commitment to serve them if we only do it a couple of times a year? Speaking with uh, Dan Hilmers a couple of weeks ago, he asked a very penetrating question. He says he asks this of himself. What difference would it make to our community here in White Settlement If Redeemer Church closed its doors, shut down, and either moved away or or ceased to, to gather together, would our community even notice? What does that say about the level of involvement and service and care we demonstrate to others? And what about the neighborhood where you live? It may not be White Settlement, maybe Benbrook or Wedgwood, wherever God has placed you. Would your neighbors notice? And would they care? If you moved away, the truth is for many of us adopting the kind of lifestyle that Paul sees as part of the basic normal Christian life means taking a pretty hard look at our schedules, our priorities, the use of our time. It may mean sacrificing a favorite television show, a favorite sporting event, some other activity that you really like. And that doesn't mean that all recreation or entertainment is a foolish or sinful waste of time. I know we do need times of physical and mental rest, 
But I thought of a test, a suggestion that may be helpful for you to take to see if your use of time is wise and honoring to God. What would it look like when you evaluate the amount of time you spend in a given week on things like watching movies, watching sports, surfing the internet, reading novels, you know the kind of things I have in mind, things done primarily for fun and enjoyment. And then you measure the amount of time spent serving and ministering to others and you reverse those two. What would that look like? I would say for some of you, I would not want you to make that kind of change because I know you already serve others more than you, serve your, than you spend time on yourself. For, for, some, for some of you, it may be kind of close. For others, it may not even be close. There may be some changes and adjustments that you've needed to make for a long time. It may even be the case for some that if you reverse the time you spent on recreation and entertainment and the time you spend serving others, you wouldn't have any time left for yourself because the truth is you're not currently serving others in any regular way at all. And if that's you, clearly something needs to change. The Apostle Paul, the same teacher, the same apostle who insists on the purity of the gospel, the teacher who defends vehemently the doctrine of justification by grace through faith apart from the works of the law, he finds no contradiction in insisting that believers engage in regular, sacrificial, loving works of service to others. And here's something I find pretty interesting about this. Out of the 18 times that I could find that Paul uses this phrase, good works or every good work, something like that, out of the 18 times he uses that in his, in his letters, 13 of those times, just over two-thirds, are found in the three letters that we call the pastoral epistles. These are the portions of the New Testament that instruct the leaders of the local church how to instruct their congregations. What are elders and pastors supposed to teach week after week for the good of their people? Well, it's pretty clear from reading First and Second Timothy and Titus that high on that list is the exhortation that God's people are to make good works a top priority in their lives. So notice how this phrase keeps popping up right here in the book of Titus. Chapter 2, verse 7. Show yourself, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Obviously, the implication there is that the leaders are to set an example that the other members, the other believers in the congregation will follow. Just a few verses down in verse 14, still in chapter 2. Describing the work of Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here he's he's saying it's not enough if we just engage in them from time to time. There is a a healthy passion and enthusiasm that is implied. We read at the very beginning, verse 1 of chapter 3, how the believers are to be reminded how to act, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work. The idea is one of being prepared. When there's something we care about sufficiently, 
we do whatever is necessary to prepare for it, to prepare ourselves to engage it, prepare for a game, prepare for a nice meal. It's because you care about it. Believers are to be prepared, ready for every good work. So we shouldn't miss this. This is an essential part of the Christian life as it's understood and taught by the apostles and handed down to us in their writings. But the picture is incomplete until we ask and answer an important question. And that is this. What is it that really drives us and moves us to devote ourselves to good works in such a way? So this is our third point, the source of good works. And of course, the answer to that comes from Scripture. And it comes in this very context in which this verse is set. So far, we've been looking at specific words and phrases here in verse 8. What we need to do is look at the bigger picture of how this verse fits in with the flow of Paul's thought in this passage. When Paul writes, uh, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, we need to ask, well, what is the trustworthy saying? Right? What are these things? So, what do we do? We look back at the preceding verses And what we find is this beautiful description, not of our works, but of the saving work of God on our behalf. The trustworthy saying that he refers to centers around the first phrase of verse 5. He saved us. He saved us. And he goes into a little bit of detail, doesn't he? To give us a fuller picture of what that involves. He starts with a description of our previous life in verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's not a very pleasant picture, is it? That all changed, he says. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It was according to his own mercy that he saved us. Not because of works of righteousness done by us. This was carried out, he continues, through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was poured out on us richly through the work of Jesus Christ our Savior. His gift of grace results in our justification, that is, our right standing with God, so that not only are our sins forgiven and our guilty record removed, His righteousness is accounted to us, and we actually become heirs who inherit eternal life in the kingdom and family of God. That's a pretty rich summary of the gospel, isn't it? That's the trustworthy saying he's referring to in verse 8. I think it also helps us to follow Paul's train of thought if we take these things, also found in verse 8, these things that he wants Titus to insist on or affirm, these things that are excellent and profitable, he says, I think that takes us back not only to verse 4, but even earlier, verses 1 to 3, and the relationship between verses 1 to 3 and then, and then 4 and, and the verses that follow. So again, we back up to verse, verse 1. He's instructing Titus to remind these Christians on the island of Crete to live in a way that is honorable and pleasing to God, submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready for every good work. We read that just a minute ago. 
Okay, what is the reason he gives? Why Christians should learn to live this way? Notice the key word beginning in verse 3. For, because, first of all, what he writes in verse 3 and 4 and following, it's the review of what we were, where we were apart from Christ, and then the rich, beautiful declaration of what God did when he saved us. And this is the relationship we see throughout Scripture between the saving message of God's grace and works of obedience and service in the Christian life. Okay, the grace of God revealed in the gospel is the fire. It's the source of heat that makes the pot boil over with good works. If you are looking into your life... As a result of this message this morning, perhaps, and you're telling yourself, oh man, there, there is not enough good works coming out of this pot. The answer is not found by running around looking for some steam and bubbles to add to the mix, is it? What you need to do is put the pot on the stove. There's plenty of energy in the gospel to make our pots boil. The problem is when we embrace a false gospel and believe the seductive lies of the enemy, you may think you're turning up the flame, but it can't last. So if the motivation for your good works are feelings of guilt, which you're trying to satisfy, trying to cleanse yourself from so you don't feel so bad, or if it's a desire for the approval of others, There is a denial of God's grace implicit in those cravings that creates a distance between you and the only source, the only true source of good works. The grace that brought you salvation by cleansing you and making you right with God is the same grace that produces fruit in your daily life. And that was Paul's point, we read back in chapter 2, wasn't it? Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. What is that grace like? What does it do? Well, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That lifestyle is further strengthened by the promise of our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself, a people for his own possession, and here it is again, who are zealous for good works. The only adequate foundation for living a life of good works, as described here in Scripture, is a proper understanding and appreciation of the gospel of God's grace. Well, that can be both a stinging rebuke and a strong encouragement. It's a rebuke because if we see these works lacking in our lives, it means more than just, well, I need to get busy and do some more. It means we are not treasuring God's grace the way we should. But it's also an encouragement because it means the answer is found 
outside of us. We do not, let's face it, we know this, you know this is true, we do not naturally have the kind of love and self-sacrifice that is necessary to devote ourselves to good works in the way Paul urges. We receive that mindset as we receive the love and mercy God has poured out so richly on us. I suspect many of you may sense that your zeal for service has faded over time. You may wish that you could recapture a greater passion for good works and self-denial and sacrificial love for others. If this is what you want, and all of us should, the answer is found in a renewed vision of God's grace as it is poured out through Jesus Christ. If you see a real need for repentance and renewal in your life, but you're not sure how to get there, Maybe you don't know how to overcome your apathy and lack of love. The Word of God has told you where to set your mind. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. Not a so-called grace that allows you to sit comfortably in your indifference to others. It's the kind of grace that moves you to act because that's its very nature. This grace moved God to act for you when you were helpless and blind and stubborn and really didn't want anything to do with Him. The grace that we receive in the gospel is the same grace that leads us to lay down our lives for others. Brothers and sisters, let us lay hold of that grace so that we can extend it to others. A grace that lies dormant and stagnant is not gospel grace. We cannot be satisfied with that. We must look at the measure of grace found on the cross and take that as the standard of our sacrifice and the source of our strength and the center of our desires. Oh, that we might see God make that happen among us. Would you pray with me?